Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. It's Christmas tomorrow, it makes it Christmas Eve today, and we're really enjoying the wonder of Christ as we, as we go through this whole month of Christmas, and at our church we've been singing Christmas carols since the beginning of November, in fact I think we might have had one in October. So that's wonderful, we're all prepared for Christmas, and uh, as I've been preparing for this Christmas season, you know I've been working on thinking about how believers can be motivated by the doctrine of the Trinity. So you'll remember we started with um, looking at an overview of the Trinity and seeing how we can be motivated by that. Then last week we looked at the role of the Father, the function of the Father in the Trinity. And now this week we're going to consider something of the, the role, the function of the Son in the Trinity. Maybe we can just ask God to help us and then I'll explain this uh, funny picture that I've got here on the screen for you today. Okay, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the wonder of the doctrine of the Trinity. Thank you for Jesus. Today we're going to look at the Son and Lord, thank you for Him, the Son of God coming into this world, God becoming man and living among us. Thank you, Lord, that we've seen the grace and glory of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen the glory of God in the face of Christ. Lord, we've seen the one who spoke light out of darkness and he speaks with that same power in our own hearts and he brings us from death to life and we say what a wonder what a glory what a delight it is to know this great God this one God this three in one without this God Lord you know we have nothing with this God Lord you know we have absolutely everything we have eternal joy we have eternal life we have eternal rest. We have eternal relationship with you. And Lord, I pray that as we look one more time at the great Son of God today, we pray, Lord, that you would draw our hearts up in huge worship. Lord, that we would see him and we would see him in a new way. That you would move our cold hearts again to worship him and love him more. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to go out of here speaking about Jesus wanting to tell other people about Jesus because he's so wonderful. Lord, we pray that you would be pleased to help us to truly worship today. And we pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen. Thank you. So, this uh, image is my third attempt, as I've been saying, at uh, using AI to create an image. So, Myself and Hope, we spent hours trying to get this picture right and it's still not what we wanted. You know, there's the whole lot of stuff that we were trying to do with this image, but it, this is what we got, okay? So you can see there, that whole scene, you can see that it's pretty much resembling a carpenter shop. 
You've got all of the little pieces of wood lying around the edges, and there on the right side, you've got this young carpenter working at his bench, creating something. There, right at the front of the throne, you've got this little baby crawling on the floor. And then on the throne, you've got this king, this regal throne. And behind him are the enemies that he's put down. And as we see the Lord Jesus Christ putting, uh, defeating Satan in his death, we also see him defeating death. So we were really trying to you know, create the cosmic scale of this reality. As you can see in the back there, sort of universe out in the back. And you've got this king on his throne and you've got the whole spectrum of his life, the ordinariness of it, the wooden floor, the little baby crawling around there. You've got the skulls of his enemies that he's conquered lying on the floor there. I mean, you might not be able to see it so well in, the, in this light. But it's a lot of detail. So all we were trying to create here is something of, of the greatness of the spectrum of Jesus' life, from His ordinariness up to His glory, and something of His power, His eternal power that spans the universe. And we see something of the magnitude of the foes that He has control over. So as we look at the Lord Jesus, as we look at the Son of God today, maybe we should just, if we go to the next slide, we can just recap something of what we've been through. We're going to look at the, fun the Son's function in the Trinity today, and you remember that the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Holy Spirit applies. So we're going to look at something of the Son's functioning today. So maybe if we just look at that next picture, I'll just remind you of, of what this looks like. The next slide. So there's our picture, the historic, probably one of the clearest historic diagrams of the Trinity. So we start with this thing, with these three summary statements. The first is that three persons in the Bible are called God. So then we see in the second point is that each of those persons that the Bible calls God, each of those persons is fully God. He's not just a part of God, he's fully God. And then the third summary statement is that there is one God. And however we work that out, we have to keep all of those three uh, summary statements uh, together in one thought. We'll notice in that diagram uh, that the Father is not, on the outside of the triangle, the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and then if we look at the Son, the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Holy Spirit. And down to the bottom, the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son. They are distinct. And right in the middle, we notice all of the three is lines. The Father is God. The, the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I think this is probably one of the clearest theological diagrams through uh, the history of theology to help us to understand these things. On the next slide, we notice a couple more details about God, and that is that the Father plans, as we were saying a moment ago, the Son accomplishes and the Holy Spirit applies. So today, as we, as we go over these, one of the things I want to point out is remember, the, the key to this is the fact that true believers can be motivated by the doctrine of the Trinity. And you remember in the first sermon I was saying that if we have three persons in one God... That means that there are relationships between those three persons. And we looked at those relationships. How the, how the different persons of the Trinity love one another with 
with an amazing love. And how they support one another. How they glorify one another. How they, they function in relation to each other and they, they have both equality and function at the same time. And I was showing that in our lives we have exactly the same thing. That we are all members of the body of Christ. Even in our families and in our employment and in every sphere of life. You are equal as a human being to every other single human being. But you function in a different way. And we were pointing out as in marriage. That the, the wife is called to submit to her husband. She's equal to her husband but she functions in a different way. And that is exactly the way that the son functions in relation to the father. He's equal to the father, but he functions in a different way, in a subordinate role. And we were noticing that if God the father is in glory, and God the son is on the floor, like in that picture, crawling on the floor as a baby, you might look and say, how can these two be equal? You know, because this one's crawling in a dirty nappy that has to be changed. That looks far lower than God the father sitting on the throne in glory. But they are equal, but the son has voluntarily chosen to function in that role. So isn't it amazing? For us as believers, we can get a bad attitude about, I have to, I have to wash the dishes while this person sits on the couch, for example. You know, we're equal, but we function in different ways. And the son is happy to function in that relation to the father. So that's where I went if you just want a recap of that, to show how the motivation comes from the doctrine of the Trinity. Secondly, we were looking at the Father planning. Remember, the Father plan, He creates through the Son. He preserves everything that He's created. He concurs with or He cooperates with everything He's created. And also, He, he moves the whole of creation forward for a purpose. He governs everything that He's created. And like we said last week, there's not one single rogue molecule in God's universe. Not one single molecule does what God does not want it to do. Every single molecule is under control, including the way in which different substances interact with each other. For example, I was just studying a couple of weeks ago, um, there's a proverb that speaks about somebody, you know, pouring vinegar on soda. You know, one who speaks cheerful words to a sad or heavy heart is like a person pouring vinegar on soda. So I'm like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to pour vinegar on soda? Well, apparently, you guys might know this, but I didn't know this. I had to look it up. Um, if you pour vinegar on baking soda, both of those, when they come together, they form carbon dioxide. The gas carbon dioxide, they actually both disappear. So you might have a useful substance, which is vinegar, and you might have a useful substance, which is baking soda. You can use those in a recipe. But you cannot use carbon dioxide in a recipe. So if you say, hey, what a wonderful day to somebody who's, who's in, in a state of sorrow, your, your compliment is wasted. It ruins the compliment. It's just a pointless thing. It just disappears like gas. And then you've got nothing, you know, it leaves nothing useful in that interaction. So in God's government, you know, in the way He concurs with and preserves, He includes the way that Everything reacts when it, when it comes into contact. Like if you eat a piece of meat, it digests into all these different uh, you know, components in your body to give nutrition to your cells. And one of the things that I said about that, you know, one of, the, one of the amazing realities of God's planning, is that God had a certain amount of time, He had a certain amount of resources, and God used that time and those resources 
in an absolutely spectacular way. And you and I have time, and you and I have resources, and if we look through the plan of God throughout history, from beginning to end, God used ordinary means to achieve spectacular ends, extraordinary ends. And that's amazing to us. You say, well, what can I do? I've only got five rand in my pocket. You know, I've only got this much time. And that's what God had. God, God doesn't use these great big miraculous um, works all the time throughout His world. God is using ordinary things. He's using ordinary conversations to bring people from spiritual death to spiritual life as the gospel is shared with that individual. God is using the most ordinary things. He's using a thing like a mosquito to distract a driver who has an accident. You know, he, he, does, he uses ordinary things in his world. He doesn't use spectacular things. And we can use ordinary things with the time that God has given us in order to live uh, making the most of the time that God has given us. So that was the second motivation. So as we look at the Son of God, as we look at the Son accomplishing Let's begin to drink in something of the beauty of the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God. So you remember, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But if we read, for example, Hebrews 1 verse 2, it says that by the Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom He made the universe. So yes, God speaks. And God is the one credited with creation. God the Father is credited with creation. But the God uses the Son. He creates through His Son. And I think that's absolutely wonderful. In Colossians 1.16, we read, For by Him, by the Son, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by Him and for Him. And you know what is remarkable about this is if we look at that spectacular image in the background, that even he even creates his enemies, even creates these formidable foes to stand against him and to oppose him. He gives life to Satan. He sustains Satan. He sustains his enemy, which is absolutely, absolutely remarkable. We think of John 1, you know, the well, well-known text about the sun, the glory of the sun in, in creation and in his equality to the Father, but functioning in a different way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing that was made that has been made. So we see the sun, the glorious creator, according to the plan of the Father. When we look at the sun in this light, one of the things I want to capture in, in the way in which the sun is functioning in the Trinity is the, is the way in which he, the Father has intertwined him with his plan. So you remember throughout the whole of the Old Testament, we've got the Father speaking through the prophets. But remember, I don't know if you remember from some time ago, I spoke here about the angel of the Lord. And there's so much evidence to suggest that when the angel of the Lord appears in the Old Testament, we are seeing a pre-incarnate version of the Son. We're seeing the Son of God walking in a human body, you know, different, not Jesus, of course, not Jesus' body, but a human body nonetheless appearing as a man and speaking to individuals in the Old Testament. So we see the Son creating, 
We see the son moving in accordance with the father's plan throughout the Old Testament, appearing to people, speaking words from God to people, managing the affairs of people's lives in that way. And then finally, in Galatians 4 verse 4, we see the son becoming man, the God-man, God becomes flesh, the word becomes flesh, as in John 1.14. As we, as we look at this, let's, let's take a moment to think about Galatians 4 verse 4, because he says, But when the time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Born of a woman, born under law. And probably the, the biggest word I want to put under this, you know, the, the biggest word I want to put this under is the word, like I said just now, ordinary. There's an ordinariness to the life of the son as he submits to the father's plan and he functions as an ordinary man. He's the God man, but he's fully man. And he functions as a fully human person in this world. There's ordinariness about the glory of the Son. I want to, in order to just try and you know, convey what I want to say today, I'd like to tell the story of a man by the name of Kim. He's a, he's a man from North Korea. And he was 16 years old at the time of this incident in his life. Apparently, the people in North Korea who live close to the Chinese border they, they're struggling for food. And apparently North Korea, I mean, if you read anything about it, horrific conditions. I mean, we don't know. I mean, there's so little news coming out of North Korea. But these people whose testimony of our reading, they were saying there's no food in North Korea. So what a lot of them do is they sneak over the North Korean border where there's no guards. And they sneak over into China and they get food and they sneak back into North Korea. They've got to do this under fear of death. And this man, Kim, he was 16 years old. He was an orphan. He's, he's got no family left in North Korea. And he went sneaking over the Chinese border to try and find food. And the North Korean military guards arrested him. So he went to court and they sent him to a hard labor camp for three years. And he said that as he was incarcerated... He suddenly realized that this hard labor camp is a place where the only thing people can think about is food. There's just no food in the labor camp. They give them such small rations and they require them to work 12 hours at a time. And then they put so many people in a room when they eventually get some time to sleep at night. They put so many people in the room that there's no space between them on the floor of that room. He says that inside of that camp, he was treated like an animal. He says that the North Korean guards did not see the, the laborers in that camp as human beings. If somebody got sick, they would die. They would get shot. You know, if, for example, they were saying that inside of the labor camp, the guards had to keep count of all of the numbers of the people who came in and the people went out so they could count them every day and make sure nobody had escaped. So every day they would count them. And if they would send somebody sick, for medical treatment for some reason they would load them onto a cart 
And if somebody died between the time they got sick and they were loaded onto the cart, they would just throw the, the dead person onto the cart anyway and send them with the send them with the sick ones to the hospital. They said they were treated like animals there. He says that one of the things that they did while they were trying to survive is a good day for them is if they managed to catch a rat. And then they would skin the rat and they would dry the rat out like biltong. They couldn't cook it because they weren't allowed to light a fire. And if they did light a fire and they cooked the rat on the fire, then the, the guards would hear them. So they would dry the rats out like biltong so nobody could smell them. And then they would, they would have a feast on, on this one rat. You know, this, would, this was a great day for them. He says that they had 12-hour um, shifts and they had approximately a handful of food to eat on a daily basis. One of the things that they did in order to keep themselves alive as well is a sort of a black market where the guards were smoking cigarettes around the labor camp. So all of the, all of the people who were, um, you know, the laborers in the labor camp, if they saw a guard throwing down a cigarette stompy or something, they would collect all the stompies and they would just take the last little bits of tobacco left in the cigarettes and then they would make new cigarettes and those cigarettes were like gold and they could sell them and, and get some money to buy things on the, on the black market trade. But they said that if you got caught with cigarettes, you know, the sentence is whatever the guards chose to meet out on that day. They could shoot you dead or they could uh, beat you. And he said they chose rather to beat people because then that beaten person would have to work among his buddies and everybody would be afraid to pick up cigarettes again. He said that their work assignments were based on the person's background, you know, their previous training or their health or their connections. If they had, you know, important connections, they'd have a more privileged position. And if they didn't have connections and if they didn't have any experience, they got treated like dogs. This man, Kim, he said that he witnessed many executions in that camp simply because the guards became angry with people. And he said that they lived in fear from the time they went in till the time they came out. They lived in fear. This, uh, this man, Kim, he tells his story after he was released. He was released after about eight months. And he says that the fear inside of those camps is so much that he doesn't know of anybody else who's been willing to tell his story, you know, and to tell the whole truth about what happens in those camps. So, if we look at this guy Kim, if we look at this man Kim and we see his story, and we think about the difference between, for example, us here sitting at Living Hope Church and a man like that Kim in a, in a terrible hard labor camp for trying to get food over the other side of the border, we can say to ourselves, man, that seems harsh, that seems extreme. But it's not as extreme, it's not even close to as extreme as the function of the Son of God. When God becomes man, when the Word becomes flesh and makes His dwelling among us. The difference from being God of very God to becoming man and to function as a man, to be in one place at a time, to be limited in his power, he can only pick up as much as a man can pick up. You know, he, can, he only has so much capacity as a human being. You know, as God, he has all capacity. I mean, God listening to our prayers all the time. But the Son is on earth. He, with his human ears, he can only hear one person speaking to him at a time. 
He can only take care of the needs of one person at a time or a group of people as in when he feeds the 5,000. This crowd is not taking care of every person on the face of the earth at the same time. The limitations to which the son subjected himself willingly is dramatic. It's like this Kim going into this hard labor camp and working on the ground day after day in the dust, in the mud when it rains there, being flogged and beaten and suffering and uh, people turning on each other, you know, living in terror all the time. We see the, the two different worlds. And for the sun to go into, that kind, into this kind of world must have been a huge and dramatic step for him. So as we think of the sun coming into this world, we think of a number of things that that cost him. And if you've spent any time with me, you've probably heard me say this again and again. But this is one of the things that God gave me, one of the reasons God gave me a mouth. It's one of the things my mouth was made for, is to say these very words. To speak about my Savior, to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. If we have a look at some of those things that the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that it involved, you know, what, what it encompassed for Him to come into this world. We think in Romans 3 verse 25, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It says there, of Christ's life, God... God the Father presented Him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. So we have Christ who is a sacrifice of atonement. He's the Hilesmos of God. He's the sacrifice of God who not only pays for the penalty of sin, but is the one who creates a whole entire life of loving relationship with the Father as a son. He lives his entire life as a, as a life of worship. A life that pleases the Father. We think of him also in Galatians 4 verse 4 that we read, born of a woman, born under law. He comes into the ordinariness of this world. And as an ordinary human being, as, as one who's, who's experiencing the full human experience, he brings glory to God in the smallness of his frame. That's what I'm trying to get to you. As Kim is in that camp, he's one small ordinary guy against formidable odds. And as the sun comes into the world, he's one man. He's fully man. Yes, he's fully God. But let's not over forget that he's fully man. In the smallness of humanity, he comes into this world to do a massive and great and glorious thing. In Luke 2 verse 7, perfect Christmas text while they were there it's Mary and Joseph the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her first so firstborn a son she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn how is this baby ever going to change the world You're just like this is you know this is nothingness and that's exactly what Philippians 2 teaches us about the Son, who being in very nature God, verse 6 says, He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He already had it. It's not something He has to reach for. He's equal with God, but made Himself nothing. A newborn baby wrapped in some cloth in a cattle feeding trough, this is the Savior of the world. In this ordinariness, he accomplishes something absolutely spectacular and wonderful. 
He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. One thing I want to point out about Philippians 2 here is that when we see Kim coming into that labor camp, he's not coming into that camp as if he's a prisoner, as if he's suffering. He comes in as a prisoner and he does suffer. When Jesus comes into the world, he doesn't come in as if he's a servant, he becomes a servant. He doesn't come in as if he's a man. He comes in as a man. He becomes a man. He has these feet, one mouth. He's got two ears, two eyes and a nose. And with, with this simple, if I may say, this primitive equipment, he accomplishes the glorious plan of the Father for him. I just think this is astounding. When I see the sun in this way. Imagine those big dragons and stuff we saw just now. Imagine me saying to you, all right, here's my leather man. You know, I'm going to give you a mission. You know, just use the pliers and go take that dragon out. And you're like, ah, come on. But you know, that would be greater equipment than if Jesus comes into this world as a man. And he has to take on Satan and death. He has to take on the world's powers. He has to die and rise from the dead in order to accomplish the mission of the Father. He, he doesn't have a sword. He doesn't have weapons. He doesn't have an army. He doesn't have massive power. He comes in as a baby in a manger, just lying there, completely helpless. That whole ordinary life, step by step, sleep after sleep, waking up morning after morning, getting up, putting on his clothes, walking out the door, maybe yawning, eating breakfast and saying, okay, who am I going to speak to today? He's not... He's not spectacular in the human sense. He's a man. And one of the things that I find the most joy in, in the gospel, is that Christ does not only purchase His people by dying for us on the cross. Christ purchases His people by living as us throughout His entire life. I find this unspeakably beautiful, that as, the, as Christ is in the womb, as He is conceived... God is seeing Christ as conceived as me. A perfect conception. Unbelievable. I'm conceived in sin and Christ is conceived perfect. And God says, look, I'm taking that as Alan's conception. You know, I, can't, I can't get over that. I'll never get over that. I will never get over the fact that as Christ is in the womb for nine months, as he's in the womb, sinless and perfect and beautiful, the absolutely perfect baby in the womb, God is looking at Christ and saying, this baby is wonderful, man. Oh, perfect human being. And all of his joy is found in this one baby. And he says, Alan, I'm going to call that your nine months in the womb. That's, what, that's you. I'm going to take that as you living those perfect... You know, I can't get over the joy that God finds in me because of the joy that he finds in his son living as me. He became a being like me in order to live as me. Not just for me, but as me. He's my substitute. He's living as my substitute through these stages of his life. We think of his childhood. I've spoken about this over and over. That baby in the picture, they're crawling on the floor in front of the throne. The ordinariness of a little baby crawling in front of the throne of a glorious king 
who has defeated forces and powers and beings that we cannot even imagine. Remember, even the archangel Michael doesn't dare to bring a slanderous accusation against Satan. I mean, that is, that is a lot of power we're speaking about. And we've got this baby coming into this world, living an ordinary life. How is this baby playing with toys on the floor, accomplishing God's mission? You know, what is so special about that? You know, what's different about this baby, this particular baby crawling on the floor and this baby or this millions of babies crawling on the floor? That baby is living a perfect, terrible twos as me. He's honoring his father, he's worshipping, he's crawling as an act of worship. And God says, well, look at Alan. He lived through his twos as an act of worship in every aspect. I mean, how is that even possible? I mean, what two-year-old do you know who can live every day as an act of worship? I don't think we know any, do we? But as Jesus comes into this world, the Father is looking at His Son moment after moment after moment as He's drinking, as He's drinking His mother's milk, as He's crawling around on the floor, as His mother's warning Him about different things, don't do this or don't do that. I mean, He obviously never disobeyed. But she's careful, you know, don't crawl down the stairs. He responds in an absolutely beautiful way every single time. Perfect attitude, perfect motive, perfect facial expressions. Just everything about this little baby is so perfect as he goes through his childhood. And God is pretty much placing my name on that baby's baby grow, Ellen. You're like, how can this be, man? This is just too big. It's too wonderful. It's too glorious. That God would do this for me through the sun. The sun functions in this ordinary but spectacular way as me. And in order to bring joy to his own father. Father, I'm doing it. What you planned. Look at it. It, it seemed impossible. Seemed absolutely impossible, but I'm doing it. I'm a two-year-old, and I'm worshipping the Father. I'm, I'm obeying my Father. Bringing joy to my Father's heart. As he goes into adulthood, as we see the Lord Jesus Christ appearing on the scene of ministry. We see him at Cana, at the wedding. You know, and his mother's like, hey, 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 it's no more wine, it's no more wine. And, and he's, he's about to be revealed on the scene and he says, my time has not yet come. And he performs this wonderful miracle. What joy there must have been in Joseph and Mary's hearts as they'd seen this baby growing up, you know, alongside his other brothers and sister. And growing up and, and looking at him and saying, this, this boy is so different, man. He's such a good influence on the others. And they still don't believe he's the Son of God. You want, a, you want a good evidence of the ordinariness of the humanity of Christ. Look at his brothers not believing that he's the Son of God after all those years. He accomplishes a glorious plan of God and a glorious accomplishment in such ordinary. You can do something like that as a believer in the Lord Jesus. You can live in your home. People can look at you and not see much difference about you. But there is something about you that makes them think. There's, something, there's some sort of beauty in you that makes them ask you questions. A lady was just telling me this week about how she was always constant. In fact, I was praying with her for her sisters 
salvation. And she said to me how she went to go visit her sister. And she found something different about her sister. And when she asked her sister, you know, what's happened to you, sister? Her sister said, you know what? When I saw the way you changed, I began to think. <laughs> and she began to ask questions. And through her answering, you know, her sister answering her questions, she, the Lord began to work in the sister's heart and changed her. And this lady is so excited about the change God has brought about. This big change God has brought about in her sister through this just ordinary way. Of, she doesn't think she's doing much different. But her sister can see something different in her. And she wants that. And the Lord has changed her sister's heart. So she's bubbling. She messaged me yesterday to say, I can't wait to tell you about my sister. So I'm, I'm waiting. You know, I want to hear about this sister. And so Jesus comes into the world in that way. He lives his life. He's ordinary but glorious. We think of the son earning the accomplishments that were planned by the father. The father writes this life story for the son. You're going to become a man. You're going to be born as a baby. I mean, if any of us had to do that now, if you had to tell me I'm going to be born as a baby again, I mean, I'm not God. I'm just an ordinary, useless guy. But even I would have a problem. I'd say, no way. So I've lived 50-something years in this world. I don't want to go back. I don't want to start again. But the Son of God, knowing everything that's going to, what it's going to require of Him, He's seen the plan. He's seen the very nuances that the Father has put into this plan. And He says, yes, Father, here I am. I've come to do Your will. And He accomplishes the plan that the Father planned for Him. And he brings full pleasure to the heart of his father. And he lives that entire life until he's 33 years old. And he goes to the cross knowing exactly what's going to happen to him. You remember in the upper room, Jesus knowing all that was about to happen. He went out. He didn't go hide. He gets up and he goes like some of these videos we're seeing about the war uh, in Israel at the moment. We see some of these brave soldiers walking towards gunfire. That's what Jesus does. He walks toward the gunfire. He gets up and he says, somebody's got to do this. And it's me. There's nobody else. Like Isaiah says, the Lord looked and there was no one. There's no one to intervene. So the Lord's own arm worked salvation for him. And the, and the Son of God is the only one who can bring pleasure to his Father by living this perfect life. And then dying the sacrificial death. Death is the hilasmos. Is the sacrifice of God that brings peace, that brings relationship between the sinner and God the Father. That's what the Father wanted. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. The Father wants this. The Son wants this. The Spirit wants this. Your salvation is a work of the triune God. And as we see the Lord Jesus Christ lying in the grave on the third day, dead, we can almost imagine the powers of evil, Satan, his demons, and all these different types of, types of spirit beings that, that exist. We see them rejoicing. We see the joy. There's a theme in, um, in theology, if you go into the history of theology, especially the, you know, the theology of the cross, the atonement, you'll find that there's a, there's a theme known as um, Christus Victor. 
You know, it's a Latin term, so I'm probably saying it wrong. Christus, you know, Christ the victor, Christus victor in, in Latin. And that, that theme came about, you know, at some time, you know, a couple of hundred years ago. I won't go into all the details, but the theme was that through the cross, God lured Satan to his own death. You know, there's, there are problems with this view. That's why I'm not telling you that this is a view you should hold on to. There's some problems with it. But the, but the picture here is that as God sends His Son into the world, he's, He appears so weak that the forces of evil can just take Him out one time. And this, this theory is that God literally puts Christ on the cross as bait, you know, like with a big hook inside of Him. And this fish of evil is lured, like it says, hey, I, I can take Him. I mean, this little weaselly thing, I can take this little man. And Satan is lured to the cross and he is hooked on the hook. You know, so, I mean, I don't have to tell you why there's problems with that because that's a bit weird. It's like a weird theory. And then there's the sort of mousetrap theory as well, you know, that, that God lures Christ, you know, God, God lures Satan like a rat to a trap and the rat snaps on him. You know, when he tries to destroy Christ, he himself is destroyed. Just like the fish is destroyed when he's caught on the hook. But suffice it to say that when Christ dies on the cross, He does defeat Satan. He does defeat death. He defeats all of these scary, invisible spirit beings that harass us on a daily basis. He destroys everything that causes fear for the believer. And He does that as He's lying in the tomb on the third day and He blasts from death into life with sufficient power in Himself it didn't appear that way when he was living in this world, but with sufficient power inside of himself to raise himself from the dead. And as I've said again and again, that is glory. A person, a dead person who can raise himself from the dead. That's glory. Remember John 10. The Lord Jesus said that the Father has given him authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. So in a sense, Christ raises Himself from the dead. The Father is also credited with raising Christ from the dead. And the Spirit is credited with raising Christ from the dead. But Christ Himself is credited with raising Himself from the dead. It's a mystery. But I want to say that this, in all of this glory, this is an ordinary man who is accomplishing a spectacular accomplishment that was planned and designed by God. Jesus becomes the complete human experience he becomes man the son is glorifying the father as one theologian said in his life and the father is also glorifying the son the son is doing something absolutely spectacular he's glorifying the god his father by living in total obedience in a in a subordinate function and the father is saying look how glorious my plan is you know, my son is accomplishing the plan. It's absolutely brilliant. So that's, we've recapped something of the Trinity. We've seen something of the overall view of the doctrine of the Trinity. We've seen something of the Father, you know, the, the function of the Father in the Trinity. He's planning and he's bringing all of these things about deliberately and intentionally. Then we've seen something of how the Son comes into the world. He creates and then he comes into this world that he created and he functions according to the plan of God. And the plan of God was for him to be an ordinary man, to function inside of the full human experience, 
the complete human experience, and through that seeming weakness, to bring about a massive and glorious result for the human race and for the glory of God. So, the next thing that we look at here is, as we see Christ accomplishing this glorious reality, we see that Christ accomplishes this glorious reality as you. I've touched on this already. But notice in Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul says, Praise be, one of these amazing verses in the Bible, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with what? Every spiritual blessing in Christ. How many of them? Every single one. Everything that Christ has accomplished. Everything that is found inside of Christ. Everything that Christ has earned. God has given me that. <laughs> in chapter 4 verse 8, Paul goes on. He says, this is why it says, When he ascended on high, he led captives in his, in his train and gave gifts to men. What gift is he giving? You know, the captives in your train is an old, as you probably know, is an old um, sort of a ritual, you know, kind of a, a thing that soldiers used to do when they would go out of a city and they were going to conquer an enemy and they would come back and they would probably bring the king and some of his nobles dressed in their royal robes, you know, with their hands tied, you know, towed by a horse into the city. You know, all humble. They used to be all pompous and glorious and now they're humble. But one of the things that they would do is they would bring all the treasures, all of the gold, all of the silver, all of the precious stuff, everything of value in that city. And they would bring all of that, that jewelry and stuff into the city. So everyone who could see the soldiers coming in, they would say, wow, these are spoils of war. So there was something glorious about that. God, Christ redeeming people and bringing them in and showing the Father these people were purchased at massive cost. I brought these to you, Father, is the mighty conqueror. So there's purpose. There's purpose in ordinary days in this world. As Christ lives his life, he's not just living as a baby for nothing. He's living a life as me. And the point is that as Christ lives his ordinary days, he's living an ordinary day as me. He's going through pain as me. He's going, he's enduring through that pain, as Romans 12 says, as me. He's a substitute, he's my substitute, there's purpose to his days. And when Christ comes to the end, when he comes to the end of this mission in the world, and as he's hanging on the cross, and he's dying, and he says those words, it is finished. What is finished? What is it that he's... Why is he so relieved to be able to say it is finished? He's relieved to be able to say it is finished because he's accomplished my salvation to the glory of God. I've purchased Alan. The whole package of salvation for him is complete. I've purchased each person in this room who's truly born again. I've purchased this person for God forever and ever and ever. What glory, man. It is finished. You know, those words, if we could just sit... And speak about what those words truly mean. It is finished. What is finished? Oh, that's the whole wrapping up of the universe. According to the plan of God. Christ has accomplished 
everything he needs to accomplish in order for God's plan to be complete, uh, declared complete. Absolutely amazing. It includes me and it includes you. What has Christ done? When he says it is finished, he has satisfied the condemning law of God that stood opposed to you. That's Colossians 2 verse 14. He says, having cancelled the written code and its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. The law of God no longer rings in my ears. I never have to say, I have not obeyed the law of God. Because Christ has obeyed the law of God as me. God considers me to have obeyed the law of God completely. I just say, that's amazing. It's amazing that a guy like me that has broken the law of God again and again and again. God considers me to have obeyed the law completely and perfectly. Not only does he satisfy the condemning law of God that stands against you, but he also becomes a sympathetic and merciful high priest for you. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.17 For this reason, he had to be, I love this text man, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. <laughs> you know, one of, the, one of the struggles that you and I struggle with Literally is the fact that we feel so ordinary and small. What can I possibly do? But Christ is made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Verse 18 says, because he himself has suffered. Christ has suffered as a man. When he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And Hebrews 4.14, dripping, uh, jumping a little further ahead. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Absolutely spectacular. Let us then, verse 16 says, approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So he's accomplished, he's become a sympathetic and merciful high priest. As you suffer through your ordinary days, as the son calls out to his father and as he as the Spirit of God intercedes for him in the same way that the Spirit of God intercedes for us. The Son is depending on his Father through the Holy Spirit in order to live a God-glorifying life. And you and I have that exact same privilege. We have a sympathetic high priest who knows what the struggle is like here in this world. He knows what it's like to be a baby crawling on the floor. He knows what it's like to be a teenager. He knows what it's like not to have money. He knows what it's like to have to work with his hands day after day after day. He knows what it's like to see other people who've got plenty through criminal activities and they're living the, the big life, they're living large, and he's not. He knows what it's like to see people envying the rich and people like that. You come to God and you say, God, I can see all of this around me. Help me to honor you in my thoughts in this moment. And we have exactly what the Lord Jesus had. He's a sympathetic high priest. He understands this. He's been a man. He also conquered Satan and every evil spirit that opposes you. 
according to Colossians 2.15, says, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Literally, Christ has made a joke of Satan and his demons, and these evil forces that are trying to destroy you in your life. I'm telling you that a person who understands Jesus Christ properly is a person who's going to struggle to be afraid of spiritual beings like demons and even Satan himself. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's devious and he's deceptive. But he's defeated. He's defeated. He cannot touch you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He might be able to do scary things around you, but he cannot touch you. You're safe in the hands of God forever and ever. Christ has conquered Satan. He went up against Satan at the cross and he defeated him. I need to say that again and again and again because you know that we do live in fear of Satan and his demons, don't we? Especially at night when you're alone and there's weird stuff happening. Remember the Son of God, the great hero, Christ the victor, he stands against Satan and takes him out. He's defeated. Christ has also crushed the power of death for you. You remember a couple of texts here, 2 Timothy 1.10 says, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He kills death, and not only does He kill death, but He gives us eternal life. I will never die. My body will drop dead on the floor, but I will never die. I will live forever because of Christ. What a wonder. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that there's a reason why Christ lives as a human being, as an ordinary man. He lived that so that by His death He might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and He's destroying death he's, and Satan in Colossians 2.15, and to free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. People are afraid of death. You might be afraid of death. But I'll tell you one thing, that Christ has taken all of the power out of death for the believer. Yes, death is still a fearful thing. It's the last enemy. But Christ has taken the power of death away from us. Remember 1 Corinthians 15, the end of that chapter is so glorious. You know, where, where our death is your sting, where our, you know, where our sin is, what, how does that text go? You know the text I'm talking about, where our death is your sting. Yeah? And Christ has taken the sting out of death, it's like a bee that cannot sting you anymore, you can just laugh at it. Oh, where our grave is your victory, where our death is your sting, where our grave is your victory. You know, it's a joke. Christ has made a joke of death. Has no power over God's people. What a glorious man. And the final thing that Christ has done is He's purchased everlasting rest for His people. You know, some people I've spoken to today and over the last couple of weeks have been saying how tired they are from this year. And you know, that sort of tiredness isn't just a yearly thing. The older you get in this world, the more you're tired you get of getting up, lying down, getting up, lying down, eating, 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 drinking, 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 
talking, 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 listening, 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 and listening to misery and ruin and trouble and distress and problems and calamities and experiencing all of those things. Eventually, the weight of life slows you down. You become more, you have a sense of sorrow about the destruction and the terror in this world. And eventually you come to the, the conclusion that the one thing I'm longing for more than anything is what Richard Baxter called the saint's everlasting rest. Imagine, God is going to give you rest. What a beautiful reality. The thing that you long for most, rest, peace, standing before God and being at peace with Him, embraced by Him as your child forever and ever, a place where you can honestly be at home. You can let your hair down, and you can sit down and you can be at peace forever. No one's ever going to come and bug you while you're trying to sleep in the lounge because you've had a long day. I mean, I'm a dad, you know. Sometimes I see families, you know, where a dad is sitting on the couch, there's a movie playing, everyone's watching the movie, their dad's, and then the kids are like, look at that. And then he's like, what, you know. And then he's not at home. I mean, that's weird. In our house, if someone falls asleep, we just we let them sleep because they're at home. It's a nice place to rest. You know, our dad's enjoying a good rest. That's nice. You know, anyone else falls asleep. It's not just dad, you know. But imagine being in, imagine being in God's glory and being able to rest. Rest. Peace. Forever and ever and ever. Maybe just a few words of application as we close here. And the first is, as I began the last two times, the first is that we have some things to worship God for. And the first thing we have to worship God for is that what the Father planned, a seemingly impossible task that would take, take an absolute hero, the Son comes and accomplishes. He actually lives that script. And the script requires Him to come in unprepared, you know, unarmed, and to fight against an enemy that can pretty much not be overcome. And he does it. He does the impossible. He lives that script and he actually pulls off the most glorious script that's ever been written. That's the first thing. We can, we can say, thank you God for the glorious Christ and what He's done. He's followed the Father's plan. Obviously, He creates. And then He accomplishes. We can worship Him for his perfect conception, his birth, his childhood that we were talking about, his adulthood, his earning the Father's full pleasure through his atoning sacrifice, through his resurrection, through his ascension into glory. We can thank God for the full package that Christ purchased on your behalf. Without that package, you've got absolutely nothing. We can worship him, that he accomplished all of that as you, bringing you freedom from the law, bringing you freedom from the terror of Satan and his demons, bringing you away, freeing you from the, the terror of death forever and ever. We can worship him for becoming your sympathetic high priest and bringing you rest. We have rest now and we'll have rest in glory. But then the third application here is, man, if you've been purchased in this way, if He's purchased you for freedom, as Paul says to the Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't live like a slave. 
Don't live saying, oh no, God's not going to be happy with me if I don't do this or if I do that. Or, you know, I've had some bad days, so I better, better be extra good to please God on the next three days. Just forget all of that slavery. And look at Christ. And Christ purchased the person. He knows who you are. He knows what a loser you and I are in this world. He knows how we fail. He knows how half-baked all of our plans are. He knows how little compassion we have for other people and how much we don't listen to other people. He knows how we don't care. He knows that we don't even love Him. But in spite of that, He set us free and He's given us the mandate to live as free people. Honestly, in spite of your sin before God. That's what He's purchased you out of. In spite of your sin, you can live with joy. You can live in freedom. You can just say, thank you God. All of my worst enemies are conquered. There's nothing that stands against me. I'm an ordinary person living in an ordinary world with ordinary time and ordinary resources. Please help me just to honor you by being a joyful person, a person who's been purchased. Like this guy, Kim, that was uh, in the hard labor camp. When that guy was released, man, can you imagine the day that guy was released from that hard labor camp? Obviously still struggling in North Korea. But being out of that camp of slavery, just that the sense of freedom brought him joy, didn't it? And you and I, we need to, one, look at Christ and see what he's done. He's accomplished my whole life already. Live as a free person before God. Just live joyfully and freely before God. Don't be a slave to performance. Enjoy the freedom that Christ has brought you. And share your hope in Christ, the only Savior with other people. Stop looking down. You know, I, say, I said to somebody one time, you know, if you have to learn to ride a bicycle, you know, how's it going to go if you get on the bicycle and you start looking at your belly button, you don't take your eyes off your belly button and you try and ride a bicycle. And they're like, oh, that's never going to work. Why? Because <laughs> you need to look up. And that's the way the Christian life is, isn't it? You cannot live the, the Christian life looking inside of your belly button. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls that, uh, what did he call it, uh, belly button examination or something. You know, just this, this way like, oh, look at me, you know, I'm so fallen, I'm so weak, I'm so sinful. It's just like, oh. Instead of looking up and seeing the glory of Christ, looking up and seeing that I've, I've been purchased unconditionally forever, there's absolutely nothing that can go wrong with my salvation. So look up and see the glory in the day-to-day -day moments, eating a spoon of breakfast and saying, God, thank you for this breakfast, man. Thank you for life today. Thank you that there's people around me that I can share Jesus with. Lord, even thank you for the difficulties that I'm suffering because it's developing character in me. I'm not going to be a weakling flopping around in this world. I'm going to take the challenge. As Jesus Christ did, I'm going to run toward the gunfire. God, help me to see glory in the ordinary things of my daily life. So that's the third application. Live as free, man. You're a loved son or daughter of God. And He's purchased you into freedom. Live as if you're free. And then just the final application is a warning. It's a warning. If, if this Christ is not your Christ, if all of the stuff that Christ earned is not your possession, then you're an enemy of the Creator. You do not have the benefits of Christ's life and death for you. You have the whole law of God condemning you and you will answer to God for every law you've broken. 
You have Satan and every evil spirit against you as your enemy. You have the terrifying power of death against you for the rest of your human life. You have no sympathetic and merciful high priest. And you have no rest. You only have torment forever and ever and ever. In conclusion, the sermon has taken us on a journey through the profound mystery and motivation of the Trinity, emphasizing the Son's role in fulfilling the Father's grand plan. We've seen the Son's involvement in creation, His embodiment in human life, and His ultimate victory over sin and death. This divine accomplishment invites us to worship with gratitude and live in the temporal and eternal freedom Christ has secured. As believers, we are called to embrace this freedom, share our hope, and look upward, finding glory in the ordinary. If you have not yet received Christ as your Savior, the urgency of finding refuge in Him is clear. It is only through the Son that you can find true rest and escape the eternal condemnation of sin. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see the Son in all of His glory. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the Son every day as more glorious. Give us a season of refreshing in this church, Lord, we pray. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the Son watching the Father writing this glorious plan. A plan that nobody, not one single human being can accomplish. It's a script that no actor can perform. And yet the Son comes along and He's qualified and He's equal to this task. And He comes into the world at massive personal cost and He becomes the primary victim of sin. He suffers under sin. And He dies and He's buried and He rises again in glory from the dead. And He sends to the right hand of the Father, unassailable, untouchable forever. And Lord, what a wonder it is that Christ has placed us right there with Him. On the throne of God in glory forever and ever. Lord, we pray that you would help us to look at these truths and to live with joy in our lives, worshipping God, worshipping the, tri the triune God, the Trinity, worshipping God the Son, and, and depending on you, Lord, for all we are worth, absolutely abandoning, our, abandoning ourselves to your mercy. And Lord, we do pray that if there are people here today who do not know you personally as Saviour, We've never known what it's like to have full confidence in this great Savior, this Lord Jesus Christ. Who maybe have not even been interested in the Son of God in this way. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased by your Holy Spirit to arrest them by your grace today. And draw them in to this wonderful new reality, this wonderful new truth. Lord, that you would grant them regenerating work in their hearts. That you would save them and change them. Revolutionize them forever. And I pray, Lord, that even today that you would draw people into this wonderful new blessing. We just pray these things in Jesus' lovely name. Amen.